great to see you all here and online uh, this mostly sunny spring morning. And yes, uh, believe it or not, spring has officially arrived uh, as of yesterday to our northern hemisphere. And to my surprise, this also means that Easter is pretty much right around the corner uh, in just two weeks. And I know, you know, I'm looking forward to that holiday, as are probably many of you, you know, celebrating the resurrection of the Lord, uh, enjoying and celebrating with probably good food with family and friends, and, you know, watching the kids have some special holiday fun, and maybe that involves... Uh, dressing up in a ridiculous bunny suit and hopping all over the place. I think Andrew's going to be doing that. Yeah. <laughs> He's not here to defend himself. So, well, uh, just in case you're wondering or worried, I'm not trying to give uh, an early premature Easter message today. Uh, we're still talking about this topic of biblical justice, specifically the hope of biblical justice. And as it turns out, I really can't talk about the hope of biblical justice without talking about the hope of Easter. Because according to Acts 17, that, that first reading today, here's what the hope of Easter, or the hope of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, ultimately turns out to be. And I'll put it this way. It's the hope of justice over all creation. Right? It's the hope for the end of all evil, justice reigning over the whole world. Look with me again at Acts 17, verses 30 through 31, where the Apostle Paul, uh, speaking primarily to a Gentile, pagan, polytheistic audience, explains what it means for them, in particular, that Jesus has risen from the dead. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, also justice, by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So the Apostle Paul, in trying to share God's plan of salvation, for the whole world to this mostly uh, biblically illiterate pagan audience tells them that Jesus being raised from the dead means God is trying to tell you that is all people everywhere, doesn't get any more universal than that, that Jesus will return one day to judge the world in perfect righteousness. And that certain day is fixed, it's coming, it's divinely appointed. And that is our hope for perfect justice over all creation. Now, did you know that that's uh, what we've been celebrating every Easter? Right? That salvation is here and that justice is coming. But I do want to unpack a little bit uh, what I mean by salvation is here meaning in Jesus' first coming to this earth, we're told in many places in Scripture that he came not to condemn the world, but to save it from bondage 
to sin and death. In his own words, he says he came to seek and save the lost. And he accomplishes this, right, by dying, by being crucified on a cross where, according to the scriptures, he died for our sins. That is, he took the the brunt and the penalty of our sin upon his very self and offered cleansing, restoration, reconciliation, and the hope of transformation to us all. But he didn't stay dead, right? On the third day, after making purification for sins, Jesus rose from the dead. And as as Paul has already pointed out to us, in his rising, he rose to the very place of God's judgment throne. And now, you know him, you love him, as the righteous judge of the whole universe. Uh, At the same time, that can sound kind of maybe distant, ethereal, abstract, but this is the implication for all of us right now. It means right now, for all people everywhere, we are called to repent. Why? Because the times of ignorance are now over with. Now is the time to get right with this risen, risen righteous judge and receive this free gift of reconciliation and transformation and life forever with him. That is before he returns on that day to judge, to settle accounts once and for all and reckon with all evil So that's what I meant by uh, justice is coming. And um, if you're one of those that have wisely responded with repentance to this call, here's what this means. You are a new creation. You now have a new eternal identity, which takes priority over every temporal, earthly, um, human identity. And you are now part of God's people and God's church. And as it turns out, uh, the risen Lord Jesus has given his church a job to do, a mission to be on about. Now here's what the scriptures have to say about the church's primary mission while we're still living in this age, before he returns. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So here we are now as a people that are first and foremost known as those who have received God's mercy and who now live to proclaim this, right? That is, both show and tell it, the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are now a people whose very existence is cross-shaped, spirit-powered by the resurrection, 
whose lives are a testimony to the very kingship of Jesus himself. I appreciate how uh, Tim Keller puts it here, and I couldn't improve upon it, so just read it for you. The church is a royal nation, a new society in which family life, business practices, race relations, and interpersonal relationships are changed. We are a pilot plant of the future kingdom of God, a place for the world to get a partial glimpse of what the, huma- what the humanity will look like under Jesus' kingship and justice. You see, uh, the church is kind of this vehicle or incubator for what is going to be God's new humanity. This new gospel-shaped community which is going to be made up of people from all tribes, tongues, and nations. And they're going to be united in this one mission, this one purpose. We're going to exist together to bear witness to Christ's lordship, to tell people, to show people that he's the way, the truth, and the life. And we actually do so in the ordinary and not so ordinary ways that we live our lives. Now, at this point, um, I'd like to address some more of the uh, contemporary or practical questions about the relationship between living by faith in Jesus and uh, doing justice for Jesus. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna spend the rest of our time exploring these two questions and seeing what the Bible has to say in response. The two questions are, what is the relationship between evangelism, proclaiming the gospel, and doing justice? And number two, how can we do justice in a way that is worthy of the gospel? So, the first question I'd like to address is, uh, what is the relationship between evangelism, you know, or proclaiming the, the gospel with our words, and doing justice. Now, this is sometimes a controversial question, uh, mainly due to negative things you may have heard out and about concerning what our culture has come to refer to as social justice. And uh, we spent a good part of the first two talks uh, trying to show the overlap as well as some of the differences between secular visions of justice and the biblical vision. I won't, I won't rehash all that here, but I do want to say a few things about how we might think biblically about this term, social justice, right? Because biblically speaking, all justice is actually social in the sense that all justice, in human terms anyway, is relational, right? And the Bible most definitely has its own unique authoritative approach to our social, relational justice. So whatever you hear out in the wild about social justice, whether it's coming from the left or the right, what I wanna encourage you first to do is humbly and honestly check what you hear against scripture. Always seek to be informed by God's word, which is Ultimately, how we uh, separate the wheat from the chaff in these kinds of uh, heated discussions. But second, 
I want to make this plea. Please don't make the mistake of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Right? And by that, I mean, please don't make the mistake of thinking that because there are all these pursuits of justice out there in the world that seem misguided or, or, or fall short of the mark, that somehow then we are free to ignore the issue of justice altogether or not care at all about what the Bible actually has to say about justice. And I hope, you know, just in the last few weeks, we've seen some meaningful glimpses of how robust and relevant the biblical vision of justice actually is. And I also hope you got the sense that this isn't something that's optional for anyone that calls themselves a Christian. We're all called to it. And this has been the case long before any modern, Western, postmodern discussions or debates about justice came into play. So, having said that, uh, I just want to share a quote from a book called Gospel DNA, which uh, the staff and the elders have recently read together. Uh, it's a fantastic book. I, I recommend it uh, heartily. Uh, the author is Richard Koken. He's a pastor who's helped plant some churches out in uh, the UK, a very post-Christian <laughs> setting. And here's his, here's his helpful take on this question. What is the relationship between evangelism and doing justice? All right, here's what he says. Christians can't do evangelism only because God's word requires more of us. But we also can't do everything with equal urgency, and our resources are limited. Jesus and his apostles practiced the priority of gospel ministry. However, the word priority is sometimes heard as being dispassionately exclusive, meaning nothing but evangelism. So, it may be more helpful to use Paul's word, especially, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers, Galatians 6.10, implying that our church family is a priority, but we should still be a blessing to our community. Social justice and evangelism are both ways of loving our neighbors. The first has great but temporary benefits for this world, while the second has glorious benefits both now and in the world to come. So in one sense, everything we do in terms of gospel ministry is about seeking the well-being of our neighbor in this age as well as the next, all for the glory of God. And here's another helpful clue that the scriptures give us about how God wants us to understand evangelism's relationship to ministries of mercy and justice. Uh, the last few weeks, I have repeatedly mentioned uh, out of Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Well, you know what comes right before the parable of the Good Samaritan? In the same chapter, it's the account of Jesus sending out his disciples to proclaim the gospel, right? Uh, so what we see there is evangelism and works of mercy seated right next to each other. The gospel comes first, 
and then the deeds worthy of the gospel follow. It's almost as if uh, Luke wanted us to understand them together, that these things aren't meant to be separated in some unnatural way, that they do go hand in hand, but in a certain order, in a certain priority. And this is a model that we also see in the, the life and ministry of Jesus himself, right? Because how did Jesus do ministry? His priority was teaching. We saw that over and over again in the Gospel of Mark. But Jesus also did what? He healed. He fed. He met people right where they were in affliction and disease. He met them in their temporal need as well as their eternal need. And everything that Jesus did ultimately testified to the nearness and supremacy and the reality of the kingdom of God, didn't it? And lastly, recall from uh, Acts chapter 6, which we looked at last week, how the early church balanced the ministry of the word and prayer with doing justice and showing mercy in the account of the feeding of the Hellenistic widows. Once again, the apostles set the ministry of the word and prayer uh, as the priority. But that didn't mean that, that the caring of the widows wasn't a priority. Rather, as Christ was exalted in the ministry of the word and prayer, works of just mercy naturally flowed out from that. And that also helped advance the ministry of the word in the greater community. Right? Many of the priests came to faith as a result of this. So here's how all this applies to our little church. Well, not, not super little, but medium-sized church in Spokane, Washington. By God's grace alone, and in all of our shortcomings and imperfections, we will strive to maintain as the priority the prayerful ministry of the gospel, and forming disciples through the gospel. That will be what we strive to keep as the priority. And I'm confident that as long as we're faithful in that task and calling, I am sure that this will give way and help form a certain spiritual culture within our body that will display justice and mercy. And those, those will be reflected first and especially in how we treat one another as fellow believers. And then I suspect it'll also overflow and go outward into the world, into our greater community, in our, in our different spheres of relationships outside of the church. Now, I'll say this. I feel like I've, I've, I've seen so much of God's faithfulness already in this regard, right? People from our body getting organized, getting together to show uh, mercy and do justice to, uh, within our body. And I've also seen people um, from our body uh, 
get organized and, and work with other people to show justice and pursue things outside of the church for the sake of, of serving the greater community. Because let's not forget that God works through and blesses many people through all the different institutions that he's created outside of the church. These institutions that, that he's also ordained. One big example would be the marketplace, right? Where most of us work, where most of us make a living. And once again, for most of us, our professional settings are in secular contexts, aren't they? Right? Yet our work in the world is a profound part of our everyday Christian lives. So using work as a springboard, um, I want to dive into exploring this question of how can we do justice in a way worthy of the gospel? Let's begin by having a look at some verses that show us how we can work in a way worthy of the gospel, even in the most secular of contexts. All right, it's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Let the thief no longer steal, which simply means you gotta stop being a thief, right? Uh, stop stealing and stop trying to enrich yourself at the unjust cost and expense of others. Okay, now what do we do? Now what do we do instead? Well, get to doing some honest work, not only, not only so that your needs are, are met, so that you can be generous, enrich others. Now you can actually help other people meet their needs. And notice I, I snuck in verse 29, which shifts from the, the, the focus on work that we do with our hands to all of a sudden a command about words that we speak with our mouths, right? It's such an interesting pairing, isn't it? Because not only are we to be generous with our work, we're also to be generous with our words by giving grace to those who hear us speak. The work of our mouths, that's what, that's what words are, and we're to actually enrich others and build others up through them. And I think we really need to, to see this ethical parity because that's, that's life under the Lord Jesus. It covers everything. The work that you do with your hands, the work that you do with your mouth, it's to share. It's to build up. It's to give grace. That is worthy of the gospel. Now, when we consider the Lord... Does he build us up with his words? Is he generous to us in his works? This is all an imitation of Christ, right? And following his just ways. And uh, 
just, just, uh, I just want to emphasize this, this, uh, this doesn't just apply to how we treat one another as Christians, right? It's fairly obvious this, this can also very much apply to how we relate to our non-Christian neighbors as well. And it's actually now that I want to challenge us as believers living in the midst of um, a very polarized culture that is getting more so, tribalism, division that seems to be growing in almost every sphere of life according to every distinction that we make between each other. My challenge specifically for the Christian is that we stop seeing people, whether they're Christian or non-Christian, through the lens of these greater culture wars, right? Which has a way of often dehumanizing other people. Stop seeing, it through, stop seeing people through the lens of the culture wars, and then let's start seeing people through the lens of the gospel of grace, right? Where you can see God's genuine image upon them however corrupted it may be it's still there now um, one really dangerous aspect or, or part of the rhetoric of the culture wars is it has a way of um, designating certain people that are different from us in whatever which way as the enemy these are scare quotes the enemy and this is an easy enough mistake to make or, or rhetoric to buy into, but here's what the scriptures want to tell us about who the real enemy is, right? And how we're actually supposed to do battle. Ephesians chapter 6. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul reminds us here that our battle is ultimately not with other people, that is flesh and blood, but the spiritual forces of evil, which exploit the sin nature in man and wreak havoc and destruction upon the creation through it. And I think when we forget this, when we lose sight of who the true enemy is, the demonic principalities, what we end up doing is de demonizing people, flesh and blood people, who, by the way, are actually just like us, right? Sinners in desperate need of a savior who apart from God's grace are helpless in their fight for their lives, which are lived in the context of the very forces of hell. That's what people are up against. That's where ultimate injustice ultimately comes from. But here's the good news. 
these forces of evil have been utterly defeated. And you know, you know how you can tell, you know how you can know. We know this because on the third day, Jesus was raised in accordance with the scriptures. And he has fixed a day where he will judge the world in righteousness. And that includes all the spiritual principalities. And I'd like to close with this uh, verse that, um, or this passage that, that reminds us of how Jesus saw the world when he first came into it to save it. Right? Here's, here's how he engaged the world with his mouth, with his words, and the work of his hands, which once again all flowed out of his just and merciful ways and his gentle and lowly heart. Matthew chapter 9. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Do you see the order here? Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel. And then he touches us in our disease and in our affliction. And all because he had compassion for us, compassion for sinners, because he knew and he knows how harassed and helpless we truly are, utterly lost like sheep without a shepherd. But he comes as the good shepherd. He comes as the just savior. And in light of all this, what does he command his disciples to do? He commands them to pray, right? To pray for those who will labor in the way that he has labored. Words, deeds, right? all for the sake of the great harvest that is coming. The great harvest that is going to uh, be revealed on that great day. See, this harvest is, is not only our hope for salvation, it's also the hope for ultimate justice. And now, as a people that have received mercy, What must we do? We have to <laughs> proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us from darkness into his marvelous light. In word and deed, 
and proclaiming his, his excellencies is what we're going to do now and to all eternity. So how about we close in obedience to our Lord in prayer? Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you that the harvest is plentiful. Lord, that you are drawing many to yourself. Lord, would you make us laborers that will go out into this harvest. And may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.